Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we have life today, that we have breath in our bodies. God, that we get to open your word and that, Lord, you will speak to us. God, we're trusting that you are going to root us in hope. And God, that you're going to root us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that our lives will be expanded and grown and changed and transformed all through the power of the Spirit of God. We pray this now in your name, Lord. Amen. So my friends, uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So if you have a Bible or a phone, you can go ahead and turn there uh, to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. But before we get ready to embark in this Acts passage, um, I want us to think a little bit about September 11th. So yesterday was the 20th anniversary, right? And uh, many people, if you were alive during that time, what you were doing and what was happening as the towers were coming down, as the planes were dropping out of the sky. And for me, I was in sixth grade. I was in Greenville, South Carolina at League Academy Middle School. And I was in Miss Dowling's class sitting in the middle of the classroom and the TV was on and there was a hush in the room and it was quiet. It was still as our eyes were glued to the TV. As fear crept into the pit of my stomach, I remember feeling uncomfortable, unnerved, uh, and nervous. And with that, there's a song that comes to mind. The song is, I will trust in the Lord. Cherish knows it, I won't sing it today, but um, the song just says that I will trust in the Lord until I die. And the reason why I bring that scripture up is because as I sat in that classroom as a 12-year-old, not fully understanding what was happening or the gravity of the situation or what it would lead us to as a country for 20 years to come, all I can say is that in the times of thick and thin, we got to be rooted in hope. And to be rooted in hope requires trusting in the Lord. And so as we look at this passage in Acts 17 today, it's going to introduce us to really the book of 1 Thessalonians. I want us to sit with this thought that our hope is in a person in spite of persecution. Our hope is in a person in spite of persecution. So verse 1 in Acts 17 says, After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, okay, three worship days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he would say. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks 
as well as a number of the leading women. But in but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, it got very personal, right? They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset and taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. All right, so we got some drama going on. So the reason why we're starting here in Acts chapter 17 is because if you read the book of Acts, particularly the second half of the book of Acts from nine on towards the end, you meet Paul and you see Paul in his various missionary journeys. So from Acts 15 to Acts chapter 18, we are experiencing with Paul his missionary journeys. And he particularly wrote the book of Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17. That's why we're starting there, right? And so uh, the, not only 1 Thessalonians, but also 2 Thessalonians. And he's writing to these Thessalonians from Corinth. Corinth is a city not too far from Thessalonica. Um, and uh, he's writing in about A.D. 50 to A.D. 49, A.D. 49 to A.D. 50. And he's writing them to encourage them. He's encouraging them to have why? One, because there's false teachers, and two, because there's persecution. And he's also encouraging them to, to have the right perspective at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, that is, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we get into Acts chapter 17, we see here in verse 1 that he is making his way through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica. Now, he is on this journey, and every time that he would go in, 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 on these missionary journeys, he would go to a synagogue. And he would go there because that was the communal meeting space. It was the space for learning and teaching and gathering. And so when he got there to the synagogue, he began to unpack the truth. He began to lead people, and as it says in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. That's key. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But what he does is he spends three Sabbaths there in Thessalonica and a couple of months after these three Sabbaths. But he spends that those three Sabbaths. And what's amazing, and Dave has already alluded to it, is that in just three gatherings, he started a, a new church. Right. By teaching them the gospel, teaching them about who Jesus is and why Jesus came, lived, died, suffered, was resurrected and ascended to God. And so I want to read to you a passage from Isaiah 53, because Paul felt it was important to um, to encourage and, and help these these Jews and these God fearing uh, Gentiles to think through the importance of suffering and also the importance of the resurrection. 
But before we talk about the resurrection, I want you to hear from Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, if I can find it in my Bible. Here we go. Because he wants to allude to a passage here, which is known as the suffering servant passages from Isaiah. So it reads like this. It says, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will carry their iniquities. I want you to be thinking about the cross as you hear this. And therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he will willingly submit to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is the suffering servant passage. So what Paul does is he begins to unpack the suffering of Christ because many times, especially particularly with Jesus dying on the cross in Deuteronomy, there's a passage that talks about that it is a curse to if you hang on a tree. And so what Paul was doing is Paul was helping the the Jews to understand that this suffering was at the hand of God, that this suffering had a purpose, that this suffering was for a reason. And so he connected it to the fact in Isaiah chapter 53 and 52, the suffering servant passages, and he helped them to connect it and understand that Jesus had to suffer. He had to suffer for you and I. He had to suffer for the sins of the world. But then he goes on to say that he also not only suffered, but he rose from the dead. You see, when Paul was then talking to these Thessalonians, he was helping them see that when he rose from the dead, that that was a vindication of him, a vindication of Jesus. Right. And so that Jesus was no longer just suffering without purpose, but with intentionality. And then he goes on to say this in verse three. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now at Christmas time, that's when we really throw around that word Messiah, right? Uh, We think about uh, Handel's Messiah and all those good things. But when we think about it, it means anointed one. It means the one who has come with a purpose, The one who has come to change everything, to transform all things. And so he begins to lay out for these Jews and these God-fearing Greeks or Gentiles what that meant. Now, when we see here in verse 4 of Acts chapter 17, when it talks about that phrase of God-fearing Greeks, uh, God-fearing just meant that those people, um, those Greeks, had a relationship to Judaism. They weren't yet believers, right? Um, But they had this honor for the God of the Jews. And so he is sharing with them in the synagogue about this Messiah who has come, who has suffered, been vindicated by resurrection, and has ascended to God. But then when we get into verses 5 
through 9. And I want to spend some time there. Because what happens is, it says, but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. The Jews get upset. They get frustrated. They, they, they bring and corral a group of people to literally throw Paul and Silas out of the city of Thessalonica. Why are they doing this? Because they see Paul's message about Jesus to be a threat to their way of being, right? And so what Paul does is in, in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, because of this persecution that they've been experiencing, and we get a little snapshot of it here with Jason and Paul and Silas, is that he wants to encourage the Thessalonians to be persistent in persecution. He wants them to be perseverant in persecution. In fact, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's a little verse that I love, that I love to share. Because Paul opens his heart to the people of Thessalonians, of Thessalonica. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel. So he didn't only, only want to talk about the Messiah who had come. He didn't only want to talk about the suffering and the vindication of Jesus. He said, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. While he was there in Thessalonica preaching in the synagogue for three Sabbaths and then working alongside of the Thessalonians for a couple of months, he was doing life with them. He was sharing himself, him and Silas together, because he felt it was important not only to, uh, to share the gospel, right, but to also open up his heart to them. And to let them know how deeply they care. When we think about tribes, when we think about tribe, churches, tribe weekend, that is an opportunity for us to do what Paul did here, to open up our lives as we also open up the gospel with one another, to be persistent, to be perseverant. But also, when we read here in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here and Jason has welcomed them. You see, with the message of the gospel, with this message about the Messiah, he had literally come and upturned the world upside down. He had brought it to a head in a new and interesting way, in a way that people had never thought about it before, in the way that people had never thought about the suffering servant passage, the way that people had never thought about the Messiah. And he realized, they realized that something new, something strange, something amazing was happening. And so the world was being turned upside down. And then lastly, in verse 8 and 9, it says, The crowd and city of officials who heard these things were upset. And after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, they released Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas flee and go their way. But what does Paul do out of his love, out of his concern? Is he writes First and Second Thessalonians. And he writes and he talks about And so 
If you were to go towards the end of each chapter of 1 Thessalonians, you would see that there is a reference to the second coming of Christ. In chapter 1 of verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. If you were to go to chapter 3, there's also an allusion to hope about the second coming. If you were to go to chapter 3, same thing, an allusion to the second coming of Christ, and so on. In chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And so as we think about hope, being rooted in hope over the next few weeks, I want you uh, to, to realize that no matter what's going on in life, no matter what the circumstances or events that are happening in your personal life or on the national scale, right, whether that's hurricanes or terrorist attacks or persecution of our brothers and sisters across the world, that we can have hope because we live in a time called the already and not yet. We live in a time where Christ has already come, where he has began to usher in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullness, and we have not experienced it yet. But therefore, because we live in this already, we have hope now in the present, but we also have hope and we look straight forward. We look ahead in time, seeing that our Savior, our Christ, shall return. Let's pray. Dear God, I ask that you would help us to have hope, that it would be enduring, that it would be sturdy, that it would be steadfast. God, I ask that no matter what's going on in our lives individually, in our families, whether that be death, whether that be struggles financially, God, whatever it may be, that you would help us to have hope in the person of Jesus Christ and that we would be empowered to cling to you through the Spirit of God. We pray this now in your name, Lord.